Welcome to the podcast History MKE, where we bring you the best stories from Milwaukee's history. Thanks for joining us. Today we are going to talk about our first in the series of Beer Barons, and this episode will be on the Schlitz family and the rise and fall of one of the greatest empires in beer. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Tim. Today we're going to talk about the rise and fall of what once was one of Milwaukee's most iconic beer brands, Schlitz. Now, I'm of a particular age that I'm just old enough to remember when Schlitz was not just a mainstream brand, but a dominant one back when I was a little kid. However, just a few short years later, by the time I was old enough to legally drink beer, Schlitz had all but disappeared. In a span of less than 25 years, Schlitz went from being the number one beer in all of America to a corporation that was deep in financial trouble, had closed its flagship brewery in Milwaukee, had lost 90% of its market value, and what little was left was being bid on by three rival brewing companies. So let's step back in history and explore how Schlitz got its start, how it grew and grew into one of the world's largest beer brands, and then examine how and why it seemed to suddenly fail in the early 1980s. Our story starts in 1848 with a local German immigrant whose name was August Krug. While still in Germany, he had supported the revolution of 1848 that sought a more democratic German government with guarantees for human rights. When that cause was lost, he left his homeland in search of that more democratic society here in America. He was one of the wave of German immigrants we call the 48ers. He landed in Milwaukee where he and his wife Anna Maria established a combination saloon, restaurant, and small brewery at the corner of 4th and Chestnut Street, or Juno Avenue as it's known today, exactly where the Pfizer Forum Complex currently stands. Was it common for restaurants and bars to brew their own beer? Is that why they combined those three things together? That's a good question. Um, from what I've read, it seems to me that most of the breweries were just standalone breweries and that having a restaurant and brewery was kind of unusual. As our story goes, you'll see he kind of left the restaurant business and went, you know, full on into the, into the brewery business. So a year later, uh, after founding the saloon, restaurant, and brewery, uh, Krug's father, Georg, came to Milwaukee. He arrived with approximately $800 in gold coin, as well as August Krug's eight-year-old nephew, August Eline. Krug and his father put the boy in school, and they invested the $800 to roughly double the size of the brewery. It also allowed Krug to hire additional employees, including a 20-year-old bookkeeper, to manage the brewery's accounting. His name was Joseph Schlitz. Within only a few years, Krug found himself as one of the preeminent German brewers in Milwaukee, standing shoulder-to-shoulder with both the best brewery and the one owned by Valentin Blatz. In only seven years, he had managed to increase the volume of the brewery tenfold. How was he able to do that? Was it at that time just a cost? Was it if you have more money, if you have a better tasting beer? Is it that he had better locations? Well, I think one of the major factors is is that, first of all, he made good beer. I mean, all the records are that he and the Bests and Blatts, you know, those they were, became the biggest, uh, probably because they made the best beers. But also, they rode the wave of German immigration to Milwaukee. So just like August Krug was a member of the 48ers who came over to America, you know, 
thousands and thousands of German immigrants came to America and specifically came to Milwaukee throughout the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. And so just the demand from the German immigrants themselves was enough to drive that kind of growth. Were the Germans the only ones that were really the brewers in the Milwaukee area? So from what I read, the the first brewers in Milwaukee were actually of Welsh descent. And so my guess would be that they, being Welsh, probably brewed uh, a typical English ale as opposed to a German lager. Um, but again, that was in 1840. Um, I believe it was called the Milwaukee Brewery. Uh, you also had the Gipfel Union Brewery and a couple of others. But again, once mid-1840s, the wave of Germans coming over just took over. And so the lager style of beer became dominant. Not only that, it was a day, it was a day and age before commercial refrigeration. And if properly brewed and handled, a lager beer had a much longer um, shelf life than an ale would. However... Tragedy struck in late 1855 when August Krug accidentally fell down a hatchway at the brewery and he died several days later from his injuries. After the death of August Krug, the ownership of the business transferred to his wife Anna Maria and it was she who convinced the bookkeeper, Joseph Schlitz, to stay on with the brewery and to invest in the business as well. Well, I guess you could say that Joseph Schlitz invested pretty heavily in the enterprise for within only two years... Anna Maria and Joseph Schlitz were married. Soon, the brewery was renamed and the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company was born. Hmm, I get that it was two years, but are we sure that the that uh, August Krug's death was accidental? I'm pretty sure from all records I've read, it was completely accidental. Local Milwaukee legend is that Schlitz earned the nickname The Beer That Made Milwaukee Famous because of the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. The legend goes that Schlitz allegedly donated thousands of barrels of beer to the city of Chicago sometime just after the fire, which is what supposedly led to the nickname. The fact is that all of the big Milwaukee brewers, including Best and Blatz and Schlitz, were more than eager to ship beer to Chicago and take market share away from all the local Chicago brewers that had burned down in the blaze. Many, if not most, were never to reopen. The other fact is, is that Schlitz didn't actually begin using the slogan, the beer that made Milwaukee famous, until the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893. So, whether it really originated because of the fire is questionable, but what is true is that the slogan did debut in Chicago, only it was 22 years after the fire. In addition, the Great Chicago Fire did force the big Milwaukee brewers to quickly learn and adapt to long-distance logistics skills that would directly lead to becoming national brands and the exponential growth in sales that followed. By 1875, Joseph Schlitz was one of Milwaukee's most successful beer barons and was more than able to afford a vacation to his homeland of Germany. He was also an avid marksman, so in 1875, he took a trip to Germany to compete in a shooting tournament, as well as to visit with friends and family in the German town where he was born. Unfortunately, on his return passage to the U.S., the ship he was on, the German ocean liner SS Schiller, tragically struck the rocks off the coast of England near Land's End. The ship went down along with 335 passengers and crew, including Joseph Schlitz. He was only 44 years old. Schlitz's body was never found, so if you visit his grave at Forest Home Cemetery, there's a massive monument to Joseph Schlitz. 
It even features a carving of the ship that he went down with. Which, by the way, Schlitz's monument is called a cenotaph, uh, which is a memorial marker for someone whose physical remains are located somewhere else, and not a gravestone. Um, which is something I learned on a really cool walking tour of Forest Home Cemetery. Once again, Anna Maria was left a widow with a brewery on her hands. This time around, when Joseph Schlitz died, her first husband's nephew, August Eline, the same one who had come to America with his grandpa, Georg, had grown up. And he was now the bookkeeper for the Schlitz Brewing Corp. company. And so once again, Anna Maria called on the bookkeeper to be the one to take charge of running the brewery. August Eline suddenly became the head of the company, and his three brothers were right there to help him run the business. Although, according to Joseph Schlitz's will, the name had to remain as the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company. And did Anna Maria end up marrying August Uh, Eline? No, 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 no. Anyway, Schlitz began employing sales agents all across the country to sell their beer, and they developed a vast railroad distribution network. In addition, the Elines were particularly talented at maximizing the profits from the Tidehouse distribution system. Back in the late 1800s, nearly all the beer sold in America was distributed through local taverns or bars. Keep in mind, this was a time when we didn't have supermarkets, canned beer, automobiles, or home refrigeration. And in case you're wondering, a Tidehouse was a tavern with an agreement to serve only the beer made by one specific brewer. Sometimes the taverns were actually owned by the brewery and then leased to an operator, and other times a brewery would sign a contract with an independent tavern owner. And so these taverns were tied to a specific brewery. I suppose you MBAs today would call that a fully vertically integrated supply chain network. The Eline brothers were extremely skilled at picking out prime locations for their taverns, and Schlitz grew from the 10th largest brewer when the Elines took over to the 3rd largest near the end of the century, and then the largest brewer in the world by 1902, selling over 1 million barrels of beer for the first time ever, surpassing both Anheuser-Busch and local Milwaukee rival Pabst. When asked about how the company enjoyed such a period of massive success, Alfred Eline, the president, remarked, Well, I suppose we had ideas. One of them was that we must make good beer. Growth and innovation continued for the next several years. And in 1912, Schlitz began bottling its beer in brown bottles, an innovation that helped prevent light from spoiling the beer. Probably a stupid question, but it was just clear bottles before that point? Uh, It was mostly clear bottles. Yeah, when I was at the uh, Milwaukee Historical Society uh, exhibit a couple years ago, I think almost all the bottles I saw were, were clear glass. And then, in 1920, another tragedy of sorts struck once again. This time, it wasn't from a death in the family. This time, it came in the form of prohibition. Every brewer in the country, not just Schlitz, was put to the test to come up with new ideas how to simply stay in business and keep the lights on. Schlitz began making and selling malt extract, near beer, and Schlitz ginger ale, just to keep the equipment running. Can you explain what those uh, are, the malt extract and the near beer? So malt extract is the sweet, sugary syrup left from boiling down the malted barley wort. And if you take malt extract and you add a little bit of water, some heat, and some yeast, you get beer at home. So something pretty useful during the Prohibition. Um, and they near also beer? sold near beer, which is just like today, it's, you know, low alcohol, no alcohol beer, like O'Doul's. And then ginger ale was just, you know, ginger ale. And this is the same time that um, Pabst was making the weird cheese, right? Yes, they made a cheese that was called Pabstette. And 
if you just think of what Velveeta is, that's what Pap's debt was to get them through Prohibition. And then another local brewer, uh, Gettleman, uh, the, the CEO of Gettleman at the time, he was actually uh, an engineer at heart. And so he designed and built, of all things, snowplows during Prohibition. One venture that the Eline family went all in on during Prohibition was developing and launching the Eline Chocolate Bar. The thought was that if people couldn't buy alcohol, they would turn to chocolate instead. And in fact, the chocolate bar named Eline is actually a phonetic spelling of the family name. The family invested literally millions of dollars into a state-of-the-art candy-making factory on Port Washington Road, which was and is directly across the street from where Sally's Butterburgers is today in Glendale. The plan was for it to be the family's transformation from beer barons to, well, Willy Wonka. Seemingly, no expense was spared in building the facility. It featured floors made of Italian marble, fireplaces in every office, hand-hewn and hand-carved wooden timbers on the building and the gatehouse, and a pair of superbly handcrafted wrought iron gates produced by legendary ironworker Cyril Kolnick. And was this a showroom and like a sales showroom type of thing? I mean, this sounds insane for a factory. It was a factory. So they burned what would today be $15 million on a state-of-the-art factory that had unbelievably ridiculous stuff that just didn't need. Yeah, you didn't need fireplaces in every office, Italian floors, hand-hewn timbers. Italian marble, for sure. No. Yeah, it, yeah. And unfortunately for the E-Lines, the candy business was as cutthroat and competitive as any business in America, and they were just breaking into this. And so the E-Line brand of chocolate bars struggled right from the beginning. What may have summed up this whole misadventure into chocolate making was the fact that they used a coating of fish oil to keep the foil wrappers from sticking to the chocolate. So, after the chocolate bars had been transported to retail locations and then sat on the shelf for a while, it turns out that nobody really wants a fishy-flavored chocolate bar. <laughs> it's estimated that the company lost about $17 million before they finally pulled the plug in 1928. Wow, that would be about $260 million, a quarter of a billion dollars that they lost. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so for the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company and the Eline family, 1933 and the end of Prohibition couldn't come soon enough. And after Prohibition, Schlitz seemed to pick up right where it left off before Prohibition. Schlitz's innovations included the first all-aluminum beer can, the first 16-ounce flat-top can, better known as the Tall Boy, and the first pop-top cans. Throughout the 1940s and through most of the 1950s, it was Schlitz and Budweiser, who battled it out year after year to see which one would take home the crown of best-selling beer in America. The title was passed back and forth until 1957, when Budweiser took the title, and they've never looked back since. However, Schlitz remained the number two brewery in the country throughout the decade of the 1960s and well into the 1970s. And then, the decisions made by Robert Eline, the third-generation Eline to run the company, would have catastrophic implications for the company. In the early 1970s, Robert Eline came to the conclusion that if Schlitz was not going to beat Anheuser-Busch as the number one brewery in size, then his brewery would become number one in profitability. I'd like to note, we, we think, after you and I talked about this offline, we think this is around the time when it started being publicly traded. Yes. From what you and I have looked into, looking at old articles from New York Times, from the 1970s and whatnot, it, it seems like it was, you know, publicly traded, but the vast majority of the shares were owned by the Eline family themselves. So the first step to save money 
was to implement what Schlitz called accelerated batch fermentation, which was a process that reduced the brewing cycle time and especially the amount of time required to age the beer. They managed to cut the aging time from around 25 days to 21 days. And then they shortened it again from 21 days to 15 days, compared to the 32 to 40 days of storage needed to make Budweiser. In addition, the company started choosing to use less and cheaper ingredients in the making of what was being marketed then as the most carefully brewed beer in the world. Real malted barley is too expensive. Let's start using corn syrup instead. Same with the hops. Fresh hops are too expensive. Let's go with those processed hops pellets instead. At first, the strategy seemed to be working. By the mid-1970s, Schlitz had the most efficient plants in the world. Its profits-to-sales ratio and its capacity utilization percentages were significantly higher than anyone else in the industry. Unfortunately, what may look good on an accountant's spreadsheet may not be good for the quality of what's going out the door. With all the changes made to both the ingredients and the brewing process itself, customers started noticing a change in the taste and the appearance of their beer. As Beer Connoisseur Magazine put it, it might have been possible to make small changes from A to B and from B to C that may have been tiny and unnoticeable to the average beer drinker. But going from A to, let's say, M was a huge leap that led to big problems. And so, it was decided that the answers to these problems with quality could easily be solved with the miracles of science. To make a somewhat long and complicated story short, the scientists at Schlitz started adding chemicals to make up for the shortfalls caused by the shortened brewing process. Chemicals were used to artificially do what the natural aging or lagering process does. Natural aging of a lager beer improves the carbonation, it clarifies the beer, and it helps to settle out any unwanted impurities. To keep their cycle times to a minimum, Schlitz had to use chemical anti-hazing additives to clear up the beer, and then add foam stabilizers to keep the beer from going completely flat. It turns out that the combination of chemicals that Schlitz was adding to their brew triggered the formation of protein chains in the beer at certain temperatures. At best, these protein chains looked like tiny white snowflakes floating in the beer, and at worst, it looked and felt like big globs of snot as one keen observer described it. It wasn't long before Schlitz was forced to secretly recall over 10 million bottles of beer, costing the company over $1.2 million. I guess that in the same way that people don't want fishy-flavored chocolate, they don't want big globs of snot in their beer either. To prevent the snot from forming, Schlitz decided to discontinue using the foam stabilizing additive. Unfortunately, because of the earlier decisions to cut back on quality ingredients, the already low barley and hop content caused the beer to quickly go flat without the chemical additive. For months, the company kept quiet about all the quality problems they were having. However, Schlitz drinkers knew that something was wrong with what had been their favorite brand, and so they left, never to return. So much for making good beer as old Alfred Eline had once said. So, sales plummeted. To make matters worse, Robert Eline suddenly died of leukemia shortly after this whole accelerated batch fermentation saga, and the company went through a number of CEOs and chairmen as sales continuously dropped below Miller, and then Pabst, and then Heilemann over the next several years. The new CEO decided that a new marketing campaign was the solution to turn around the damaged image of Schlitz. What they came up with was a series of TV ads that were meant to be funny and amuse viewers. 
However, it had the opposite effect as consumers actually found the ads menacing, and it has gone down in history as the Drink Schlitz or I'll Kill You ad campaign. Excuse me, sir. We'd like to take away your Schlitz and have you try our beer. You want to take away my Schlitz? You want to take away my gusto? <laughs> You're the first person that ever made me laugh. If you don't have Schlitz, you don't have gusto. You don't have beer. Then, as if nothing else could go wrong for Schlitz, by early 1981, the Milwaukee plant was up for union contract renewal. As you might imagine, the struggling company offered no increase in pay to its union workers, even though Pabst and Miller had recently negotiated a dollar an hour increase at their facilities in Milwaukee. Not only that, but the company threatened to eliminate any and all union jobs not directly associated with the brewing process, including the delivery drivers who had been a function of the brewery since the days of August Krug and Joseph Schlitz. On June 1st, 1981, with no deal in place, over 700 union workers walked off the job. And just two months later, the company board of directors made the decision to permanently close its flagship brewery in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They continued with their breweries in Memphis, Los Angeles, North Carolina, Texas, and Tampa. By this stage, the company as a whole was operating in the red, and the board of directors were willing to merge with just about anybody willing to buy the Schlitz operations. In October 1981, competing bids were placed by Heilemann and then Pabst, to purchase Schlitz, only to be rejected by the Justice Department on the grounds of anti-competition. Eventually, in June of 1982, the Justice Department approved a $500 million bid by the Detroit brewer Stroh to purchase all of Schlitz's assets. In retrospect, it turned out to be a bad deal for Stroh because the debt they had to incur to buy a nearly worthless brand proved to be too much to carry, and Stroh went out of business in 1999. Is Stroh a company I should have known? Do they have any brands that I would know? Uh, they had Stroh's. I remember Stroh's as a kid, but um, again, by 1999, they were gone. What happened after they sold to Stroh? Because Schlitz are still around today. Yeah, so Stroh owed them until 1999. Paps themselves went out of business in the mid-90s, and so did a whole number of other smaller regional breweries all around the country. And so what is now today the Pabst Brewing Company, they, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I want to say, I could be off, but they went on a campaign to purchase all of these failed brewery brands like Lone Star in Texas, Olympia in Washington, Pabst, Schlitz, um, Old Style. They own all these dozens and dozens of these brands. And so today, they contract out with larger brewers like Miller in the Menominee Valley. And so Miller makes and brews Pabst today, Old Style, all kinds of other brands that were once you know, independent competitors of Miller. So you're telling me that Pabst, Schlitz, all of these guys, they're just a marketing company today and that their beer, if I go take the tour at Miller, I could see Schlitz and all these other ones. Last time I line. took a tour of Miller, I saw hundreds and thousands of cases of Pabst coming off the line. Yeah. Uh, old Frederick Pabst would be turning in his grave, I'm sure. Is the original Schlitz recipe the one that they finally restored? Yeah. So they're definitely not 
using the recipe they did in the ni- late 1970s. Definitely not the one with snot. Yeah, they're not using the snot uh, recipe. They, um, In fact, when they came back, when the Pabst Brewing Company reintroduced Schlitz, I think it's probably like 10 years ago now, um, time flies. But yeah, they brought back the 1960s gusto theme and they actually marketed it as the, the ni- classic 1960s recipe. And as I understand it, they actually talked to brewmasters that were at Schlitz in the 60s to get it as accurate as possible. So, yeah, definitely alienating themselves from the 1970s debacle. In the end, the story of what happened to Schlitz has actually become a case study that's taught in American business schools today, but not in a good way. And as journalist Jacques Neher put it in his article entitled, What Went Wrong?, that was featured in the Milwaukee Journal, he said it's, quote, a classic tale of human failing. The Schlitz saga now serves as a reminder for those who might lose sight of the fact that a company, no matter how modern its plants, how endowed the balance sheet, or how lionized by Wall Street analysts, is really no stronger than the human beings that manage it. One thing that really kind of makes me confused from the story is when they're just riding high, they made it through the prohibition, and now the company's doing well, they're focusing on quality again. What happened that suddenly, just like that, they decide we're going to change the way we've been doing business. We're no longer going to focus on making good beer, but we're going to focus on squeezing every penny out of that. You just usually don't see that unless you start having to deal with quarterly reports and it's now a, a massive public company. Yeah, I mean, I do know that near the end, let's say throughout the 70s, there was a huge amount of pressure from stockholders to keep producing and keep shelling out dividends. And a lot of that was coming from the family itself. Because the family was still owning like 70%. The family owned like 70% of the brewery. And I do know there was a huge amount of pressure on Robert Eline and the board of directors of the company to keep producing those dividends and keep producing, you know, record-making profits. And that's what eventually caused them to say, just sell it all because we want to, we want our money. Yeah. So reading up on this before, you know, reading up on this topic, you know, beer is one of those things that, you know, everyone's passionate about their beer, but if something happens and something changes and, you know, your beer becomes skunky or something wrong with it, you know, they're leaving and they're never coming back. And so, it was a tragedy. It was an absolute tragedy what happened. Not in a good way. <laughs> and that is our sad but true story for today. Thanks for joining. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode on the Beer Barons. This time we'll take on PBR and tell you the true story about how it really got its blue ribbon. I hope you'll join us then.